This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 47, David Booth and Flight 191. that? David Booth rose out of bed suddenly in a cold sweat. The horrifying images of a nightmare still playing back in his mind. He slid unsteadily out of bed and crept to the ensuite bathroom hoping not to wake his wife. He turned the faucet on and leaned over the sink to splash cold water in his face. Despite his best efforts, it wasn't long before his wife entered behind him with a worried expression on her face. David, what's wrong? she asked. He lifted his head, and she met his haunted eyes in the mirror. A dream. A a nightmare. It it was so real. I know it sounds silly, but it it was just so real. I can still see every bit of it. I was... I was standing in a field. It was hot. The sun was pounding down. I was looking out to my right, and a jet was flying straight toward me. I raised my hand to block the sun, and and the plane banked hard. Its wing went straight up before it went entirely upside down. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I I started to back up. I didn't... I didn't know what to do. He was headed nose first straight for the ground. And then... He shuddered and leaned over to splash another round of cold water in his face and continued. It just crashed. It hit the ground so hard, like nothing I've ever heard or felt before. My mouth went dry. I didn't know what to do. I just stood there and... Was so loud. When the explosion started to fade, I woke up. He pulled a hand towel from the ring above the sink and patted his face dry. My God, Dave, that sounds awful. Are you all right? She worried. I think I'm all right. Just a dream, right? A very vivid dream. Surreal even, but yeah, just a dream. I'm alright. He pulled the towel back through the ring 
and put a hand on his wife's shoulder, smiling reassuringly. Let's get back to bed. David Booth was a normal guy in every way. Born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, he lived a modest life. He was an office manager, a husband, a father of two young children. Nothing strange had ever happened to the man in his entire life. That changed that night in May of 1979. David had no idea that the shockingly vivid nightmare that had woken him would go on to torment him on a nightly basis for longer than he would believe. The next night he awoke at the same time, this time sobbing. He described the exact same dream to his confused wife, the details more intricate, the emotional impact more extreme. This terrifying experience would repeat itself a third night, a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth. Same dream, same plane, same disaster. All identical to the experience that had shocked him out of slumber that first night. Over the course of the six days, David became convinced that this disaster was destined to happen. That there was nothing he could do to prevent it. But on the seventh night, he simply could not take it any longer. He was determined to do something about it. The one piece of information that he felt he had from the dream was some connection with American Airlines. He didn't know why he knew that. He simply knew that the airplane was an American Airlines flight. He managed to get in touch with the manager of the Federal Aviation Administration office in Cincinnati, Paul Williams. He wasted no time in recounting the bizarre and unsettling dream that he had been experiencing every night that week. Shockingly, the information was not disregarded as mad ravings. In fact, Williams took it quite seriously. He asked David for every bit of information that he could offer. Unfortunately, the only thing that he was sure of was the fact that it was an American Airlines flight. Seemingly convinced by David, but frustrated by the lack of details, Williams took the time to go through the dream step by step with him once again in an attempt to gather any information on the location or date of the disaster. They did this several times. They were eventually able to draw out a few clues about the airliner itself. The vessel had three turbine engines, one on each wing and one on the tail. The details allowed Williams to determine the make and model of the plane in David's dream, a DC-10 jet aircraft. No further details could be established. With a promise to look into the upcoming flights of these aircraft in the area, Williams hung up the phone and David went on with his day. The nightmares would persist for yet another three nights, and David began to feel the emotional impact of this nightly trauma. When sleep aids failed to quell the nightly nuisance, he began avoiding sleep. A creature of habit, this did not work either. Each night he slept, and he dreamt of the same unavoidable disaster. Under the advisement of his increasingly concerned wife, he decided to reach out to a psychiatrist. They hoped that some honest-to-goodness treatment could help with this ongoing affliction. Meanwhile, Williams took the information gathered from David and presented it to several flight managers at airports in the area. 
but the general lack of detailed information left them unable to act on it in any real way. One night later, on May 25, 1979, the dream visited David once again. It was exactly as he had experienced the previous week, with one specific difference. Upon waking, he could not shake the feeling that this would be the last time. Carrying this feeling with him throughout the morning, he left work early. He knew that this terrible affliction was over for him, and that was a good feeling. But he also knew with equal certainty that somewhere in the world, a tragedy was looming. A tragedy that he could do nothing more to prevent. Later that same day, at 3.05 p.m., American Airlines Flight 191, a DC-10 jet plane, left from O'Hare International Airport carrying 258 passengers and 13 crew members to Los Angeles. The plane took off and began its climb without issue, but soon began to experience difficulties. Without warning, it banked right and flew out of control toward the waiting earth below. The flight crew tried valiantly to correct its trajectory, but it ultimately proved fruitless as control had been lost entirely. After only a few minutes in the air, Flight 191 smashed into the field just east of O'Hare, bringing to reality the imagined catastrophe that had been plaguing David Booth for more than a week. All 271 souls aboard were lost, along with two people on the ground. To this day, it is the single most deadly aviation disaster in the history of the continental United States. The investigation that followed revealed the cause. It appeared as though the left-wing engine had separated and collided with the rear jet. This destabilized the plane and severed electrical and hydraulic systems making it impossible to correct. With the left side wing slats stuck in position, the passenger jet quickly edged into an asymmetrical drag. The right side wing lifted higher than the left, and the plane eventually inverted entirely, and control was never regained. The final inspection of the aircraft before its disastrous end was performed on May 11th. This was just five days before David's dreams began. The inspection revealed not a single technical issue with the plane, although the official documentation of this inspection would be mysteriously lost during the investigation. When news of the crash reached David, it was devastating. Despite reassurances from Williams and many other consulted aviation officials, David felt as though the disaster was his fault. The incredible guilt that weighed upon him because of his seeming inability to act on his dreams, led him to a near-nervous breakdown. Almost immediately following the crash of Flight 191, local newspapers got wind of David's attempts to warn the FAA. They were somehow made aware of his fortuitous dreams, and they reached out to David for details about his incredible tale. For a brief period during the crash investigation, David granted a small number of interviews. When the investigation concluded, he began refusing to comment, and soon the local media lost interest in his involvement. This crash was not the only example of the DC-10's reputation for unreliability. Just five years before, 
Turkish Airlines Flight 981 crashed, killing 346 people. And in October of 1979, yet another DC-10 would be involved in a fatal crash. This would lead to a complete reworking of the model. The reworked model would maintain a mostly unblemished flight record for the next 20 years. Some speculate that David's dream was not only a premonition of the crash of Flight 191, but of the end of the original DC-10. What truly set his vision apart from the other instances of premonition is the fact that he was not alone. Lindsay Wagner, an actress known for the lead role in a television series called The Bionic Woman, recently revealed her involvement in this transcendental tragedy. In an interview discussing her one-woman show, Wagner disclosed some of the details. She and her mother were in fact scheduled to be aboard Flight 191 on that day. In the hours leading up to their departure from O'Hare, she claims to have experienced intense moments of vertigo. A self-described practitioner of holistic spirituality, she took this as a sign of impending doom. At the very last moment, she switched their flight. Of the aftermath, she stated, quote, We took a flight to Portland instead to meet up with my sister, and didn't hear about the crash until after we had landed. I called my secretary to tell her of my change of plans. Everyone thought I had been on the flight, so there was a lot of relief. And of course, I was shocked and saddened to hear what had happened. Unfortunately, aboard the flight was famed 1970s iconoclast and editor of Playboy magazine, Judy Wax, along with her husband. In the years that followed their passing, many of her readers discovered a truly enigmatic bit of synchronicity within her final book, titled Starting in the Middle. A line stood out to many that felt oddly premonitory. Wax went into great detail about her fear of flying, on page 191, the same number as the ill-fated flight that would take her life. This situation leaves us with many questions. What exactly are dreams? And what level of relevance do they hold for our waking lives? Precognitive dreams are anything but a new concept. Examples throughout human history are cited time and time again when making a case for the extrasensory capabilities of mankind. From Mark Twain and President Abraham Lincoln's dreams of impending death, to Carl Jung's prediction of World War I, precognition has been around for as long as people have. Of course, most people would tell you that when dreams align with reality, it is simple happenstance. But considering the number of individuals who received some version or another of premonition regarding this terrible tragedy, it is hard to argue pure coincidence. Easier, in fact, to argue that the shocking accuracy of some premonitions tells of a deeper process occurring within these psychological mechanisms. Whether this leads you to consider the role of personal perception in the construction of reality, or the possible existence of a collective unconscious, depends entirely on you. But the idea that something more is happening here is a clear possibility. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now, the debrief. All right. 
This, uh, I'm honestly, I don't like this one. Yeah. Uh, the reason being is because I have a terrible fear of flying. Yeah. And I have multiple flights coming up soon. So, <laughs> um, which actually, just now that I mentioned, I'm going to go off on a tangent a little bit because uh, recently I was looking into because I really want to go to the UK, which involves a very extremely long flight. Sure. Uh, so I went down this rabbit hole, not only like looking into like all of that, but then safety of flights and safety of all travel and i literally spent so long looking at numbers and percentages and the amount of like uh the amount of accidents in planes within the last 20 years uh, which has went down significantly by the way um i think it was all through 2020 2020 or 2021 there was maybe like a total of like a hundred odd people that were uh, hurt in like a you know plane accident or something like that. So like wow. apparently like chances of survival are also extremely high now. But also planes are you know a lot more safe than they used to be. Yeah, you yeah, know, dude. So in like even like in the eighties um, and back, from like the eighties back, airplanes were fucking death traps yeah yeah without a like, doubt like I, I, yeah i would i would have pro- <laughs> i probably would have never went on one back then at all yeah it's crazy even you have this, even like, in the 90s you know they were yeah. they were still on that uh like you know within that a little bit yeah i mean in the 80s especially in this setting in the story in the 70s you basically had this like giant metal tube propelled by jet fuel filled with people smoking <laughs> Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's... I couldn't imagine being, like... Because, like, in a plane, you're in such, like, a tight, you know, tight-fitting area. Uh Uh-huh. And especially if you're on a full plane, like, you know, there's so, so many people on there. I couldn't imagine, like, also cigarette smoke throughout that. That would... uh, That'd be awful. They're like, do you want smoking or non-smoking? And it's like, there's no non-smoking. Exactly. If, if there's yeah, we'll a try to keep section. you away from it, but you're still gonna be breathing it in the entire yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, the amount of secondhand smoke I could imagine would be just horrible. So that'd be wild. You know, it, yeah, which I'm glad things aren't like that anymore. You know, there are pluses to not, uh, you know, like closing. I guess not allowing like smoking and smoking sections and things like that these days for sure for sure um but yeah so this rabbit hole like i said i went down i I was just looking at the amount of like accidents deaths things like that just even psyching myself out but afterward i actually felt almost like a sigh of relief uh you know knowing like how few accidents there are um, and how safe safe it is and like the percentage is like point like zero zero like what five percent or something like that it's like one for every hundred thousand i believe so which is you know a hundred thousand flight hours right uh so yeah pretty you know pretty nuts but then also like looking at that compared to like street travel like i mean traffic uh you know cars anything like that and then also ships and cruise ships cruise ships are even far less than that which is crazy to me yeah. Um, you know, because of how big they are and how, like, how many people can, you know, be on a cruise ship. I mean, you can easily have, like, almost 10,000 people on a large cruise ship. Yeah. 
you know, so I, I was, yeah, it was, it was kind of cool to find out, you know, but, uh, yeah, I, I did this, like I said, knowing that I would end up psyching myself out and, you know, be, <laughs> being fully prepared for it, but I was pleasantly suppressed. So, yeah, I mean, you always hear that, like, flying is safer than driving. Right, right, right? of course, but, like, you know, which makes easy. sense. Yeah, but it's easy to, like, I guess it's hard to wrap your head around how much safer it actually is, right, statistically. I also it's think so about, much like, safer. yeah, there's there's a lot less, like, I mean, there's, there's so many planes in the sky at one time, whatever. But at the same time, like, if anything happens, you're going to plummet to your death, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so... And that's that's always been my way of thinking about it, and so I'm also though, trying to get away from that. If like, if getting a driver's license for an for an automobile was as difficult as it was to get a pilot's license, I think driving would be much safer. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, there'd be a lot fewer people driving, and they would all know what they were doing. Right, but you know, to these days we have also like uh, things like Flight Simulator. Like uh, I think uh, oh, yeah. you know that mo- Microsoft, the, right? Yeah, their Flight Simulator and stuff, which apparently is very comparable. Um, you know, so anybody can learn how to fly without uh, <laughs> without actually having to do yeah. so. Which I suppose isn't a bad a skill to learn. Even yeah. just being vaguely familiar, like oh yeah, I could do this, and you know, be able to save everybody. Dude, I have like 140 hours on Microsoft Flight Sim. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure I could. I'm pretty sure I could fly a small plane. Nice. Yeah, that's something I've always wanted to do too. Is to learn how to fly. Like, even though oh I God, have like not such a terrible fear of flying, like it's just the same thing with being in a car. Like, if I'm not driving, I have a I have a horrible fear of anything. Yeah. Like, any little, like, bump, anything like that freaks me out. Like, you know, if I'm not in yep. control, like, you know, that's that's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. But I know that's not what this is about, but, uh, you know, like I said, I... I no, it's okay. Yeah, just kind of discussing where I've, where I've also been with that, because, you know, this is one of those kind of hard-hitting ones, for sure. Especially for me, you know, having yeah. that fear. So... I mean, we'll, uh, I share... I share that fear with you. Flying scares the shit out of me. Yeah. But I also just don't fly. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's you know. the easiest way around it, right? Yeah. For me, like, my fear of flying is right there with, like, my fear of, like, great white sharks. Like, I'm not... I'm scared of them, but I'm not too worried that I'm going to run into one. You know? Well, you know, I would love to go down and, like... Uh, cage and swim with sharks. No. I think that'd be awesome. But you oh know, God. I when it came down to it, I probably wouldn't do it. You know, I'd I, yeah. I'd end up like psyching myself out way too much because that's what I do. Yeah, some of that is just survival instinct, right? You exactly. That, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Some of it's know? good. <laughs> My life is probably... more important than excitement. Yeah. Like, it's an evolutionary advantage to be able to go, maybe I shouldn't jump in the water with the sharks. Yeah, I, I suppose, I suppose. Yeah. But, I mean, even in that, like, you're gonna be fine. Unless, like, the, you know, the gate opens or something and you end up with a shark in there with you. Yeah, I and mean... And then, like, no chances one... of surviving that are probably gonna be pretty slow. <laughs> no one gets eaten by sharks until they get eaten by a shark. That's true. You're right. You're right. That's yeah. I mean, which is safe to say of, about anything, really. 
Yeah. Like you never is. run into this problem until you run into it. Or yeah, you know, like I, Dude. I tell my kids that all the time. They're like I'm like, stop doing that. Stop like jumping over that. And they're like, I jump over it all the time. I never fall down. Right. And I'm like, no one falls down until they do. Exactly. But the moment that it happens, then Yeah. You're gonna really wish that you hadn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get it. I, I get don't know. It for I sure. try to balance like I try to balance like you know keeping them from killing themselves, but also like not making them as neurotic and fucked up as I am. <laughs> right? You know? Yeah. Like because yeah, I true. I want them to be able to go out and do things happily. Right. You, know? you can't keep like what the leash too tight, right? Yeah. You yeah, have to yeah. you have to let them experience and fail, but also like fail yeah. gracefully. I try to I try to keep in my mind. Um, I forget who said it, but it stuck in my head years ago. Like, it's important to let your children do dangerous things carefully. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's so, a really good way to put it. Yeah. So now anyway. getting, getting to the actual story. <laughs> um, yeah. and obviously this is so this is very you know very familiar to like we talked about before final destination like especially sure. the original uh flight 118 or whatever it was i can't remember um you know like having like having that like premonition or that vision of the plane crashing obviously in this case you know this guy wasn't there about to board the flight or anything he kept dreaming yeah. about it which i think is you know also a little bit strange because he had nothing that could have brought about like that dream you know like yeah, it's not like to do with it he had considered flying or was planning a trip or anything like that it just nope. happened to like frequent his his thoughts or his you know his dreams is whatever like so that's that's what's also a little bit strange about it yeah i mean he's in cincinnati the flight is in chicago he's he's not related to it at all it's it's very odd and like the fact that it happens over and over again is right. the thing because with a lot of these you know there there were like tons of crazies coming out of the woodwork like after 9/11 that were like I dreamt of this. Oh yeah, I mean it's, you know it's I mean? easy to say something after the fact, right? Yeah. Um but to literally but like, explain in detail yeah, you know what's going to happen like he did here. And all the work he did with that um, FAA manager for in Cincinnati. Yeah. All those conversations he had leading up to it are all completely documented. Like That's crazy. They're yeah. Which I'm actually impressed legit. that the guy bought like bought into his story and his like guy like a speculation in this case. You know, because in modern day yeah, you say something like that, and then they're you know it's going to be taken obviously the wrong way. Yeah, odds um, are they just hang up on you. Yeah, that or you know, you're going to have like some like big name person arriving at your door, right. and you know they're making gonna sure think you're that, not a threat. Right, exactly, thinking you're a terrorist or something. Yeah, you know, which is unfortunate, but that is yeah. the way of you know that's that's just how things are you know now due to also, things like nine eleven and all of that, right? Yeah. Also, the 70s were a very weird time to be a human being. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, of course. Culturally very odd. So, like, 
I guess his chances were probably better of getting someone who took him seriously in the 70s than now. True. Um, yeah. But I, I still, yeah, I found that super interesting that the guy was, like, open to it. Right. It's and, not... like, yeah, let's... He spent hours with him on the phone, like, rehashing the dream over and over again to try to pull details. Right. And then he also go. This same guy goes and, like, tries to, like, tell everybody else and, you know, but yeah. they don't find, you know, I guess any reasoning or anything to, like, really look into it because, obviously, it's just... You know, based off of someone's dream, right? Yeah, and I mean, there isn't really any actionable right, information. Exactly. Right? Like, they know a DC-10, if they believe, like, this is a premonition, this is, you know, he has seen the future. If they get that far, all they know is that a DC-10 is going to crash somewhere yeah. in a field. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, and, that's like a needle in a haystack at that point. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, there's no further information to really go off of to I guess, yeah. you know, pinpoint exactly where where or what this thing is, right? Even knowing it was American Airlines at the time in the 70s, American Airlines had 85 DC10s in service. So it could have been any of them. Yeah, that's that's a lot. Yeah. Now, um so I guess skipping skipping ahead. So this happened what May twenty fifth is when this actually occurred, and yeah. the plane itself was inspected on May eleventh. Is that yeah. right? Yep. Um, which now I I know that they do inspections like more frequently and things like that, right? Um, yeah. You know, just to make sure these things don't happen. But like, I also found that really off putting that you know literally two weeks went by without this plane being inspected. And I'm sure there were other flights during that yeah, time, right? You yeah, know, I doubt it been. sat for two weeks before it had its next flight. Probably not. In the At this period in the 70s, American Airlines was like the biggest airline in the country. So they were probably running all their planes all the time. Right. That's what I would yeah. expect, you know? So, yeah, that's yeah. that's definitely strange because you would think like especially i mean a plane that's in the sky you know you want to make sure up you know you're keeping up on like the upkeep and everything so i don't i don't know if two weeks was odd for that time period or not i don't know if that was just standard operating procedure back then or to me i find that extremely off-putting yeah you know like that's that's a lot of time to go by you know again this like I mean, that's like maintenance on a car. You know, you're not going to go get it checked out every day. You're sure. not even going to ch- get it checked out every two weeks. I'm pretty sure you they know, definitely so check out airplanes every time. Right. Now. Exactly. And I'm, I'm sure yeah. of that, too. Right. Probably one of the many reasons why it's so much safer now than it was in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. So that's yeah. I mean, it's just it's crazy. Like all these little things, you know, that kind of add up and like. But imagine being that guy though, and watching. I mean, first of all, that that first that first dream, like, yeah, man, that that would mess that would mess with you. You watch yeah. this plane literally crash into the ground, and you're like, wow, like, you know, like that'd be terrifying to watch. You wake yeah. up, okay, it's a dream. Like, just relax, you know, everything's good. But you continue to have that same dream, and like, I know that I've had a lot of the, you know, I've had a lot of the same dreams. And yeah. most often when I'm having like the same dream, I I can actually 
realize that in my dream, oh, I've I've literally had the same dream, and I can wake, I can normally wake myself up. You know, it's kind of just one of those things where you're just like very like you know aware of what's going on and aware that you're actually sleeping and stuff like that. Yeah. Um. I'm. I don't think I've ever had a premonition, but like yeah. you know, even even that though is is crazy enough. Just having the same dream, but like something like this that's so like emotional and it's you know like something that's literally just gonna again kind of mess with you or it's gonna be hard to kind of come back from or whatever else right yeah Um, it's traumatizing extremely traumatizing right yeah to see tragedy on that scale like every single night when you go to bed that's yeah and he described them as being the most vivid surreal dream experiences he had ever had in his life so imagine something on the scale of actually standing there in the field watching you know 270 people die in front of you like yeah i was gonna say i mean there's them that had to have been like a full flight plus like you know everybody on board and you said along with two people on the ground that ended up getting killed because of it too so yeah. yeah That's it was, yeah, devastating. It's still, like, it's still the the most deadly aviation disaster in American history. In like the continental U.S. Right. I think the one beat it in some Alaskan flight where like 350, it was like a huge fully boarded plane crashed yeah. in the 80s, I think. Um, I'm not sure on that, so... That's, if anyone has the a correct lot of, a lot of people story but yeah well there i know there were i i specifically cited another dc10 that was a turkish turkish airlines i believe um they it went down a few years before this one did and it had like 300 yeah it was a turkish airlines flight 981 crashed in 73 and it killed 346 people wow that's a lot like that seems like an extremely overcrowded flight (laughs) yeah they were all smoking cigarettes (laughs) (laughs) that's terrible uh, no, but yeah, this is like, um, this is still has the record for the continental U.S. Yeah, one ninety-one. That's crazy. So I guess my question is: is how how much do you buy into the idea of premonitions and things like that? I mean, obviously, like in this case, you know, this is. Yeah, I don't want to say a one-off situation or anything like that because I'm, you know, there's lots of different reports and things like that out there. Yeah, but you know, like I think, like, do I generally think it's possible? I mean, not necessarily possible. Well, I guess maybe possible, and also like, how frequently do you think that it's happening? Right. I think that most cases of you know, dreaming a premonition, um, 
is probably probably has to do with with intuition, with human intuition. Okay, that's um, fair. I know I had, I know I had a reoccurring dream when I was a kid. Um, I had it like two or three times a week for like six or seven months straight when I was ten, and it was just this kind of like this like I can't even really describe it visually um but it was just this like overwhelming anxiety you know that I would feel during it and like like something was coming okay you know and eventually I realized that um cuz my parents split up for like a year that later that year sure and I and when that happened I realized that that's what I'd been dreaming about and I think that was just intuition. Like I saw them headed that way, right? You know, I mean, and that makes a lot of sense. All the, yeah, and I think honestly, even more detailed, um, even more detailed dreams. Um, what's the actual word for those dreams? Precognitive dreams, right? I think even more detailed precognitive dreams are like. I think a lot of it is intuition. Like, you have a, a pretty good idea at some level of your mind that a thing is going to happen in your life, and you dream of it, and then it happens. Yeah. Right? I think that's... Um, I was going to say, I think that's also similar to, like, having a bad feeling about something. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, you go intuition. into something, and you just... Right, you just feel like, okay, this is kind of a bad setting or something, you know negative might happen whatever else like yeah i think that's kind of similar in that regard yeah definitely but like i tend to believe that at least a small percentage of the the human population has the ability to i don't know if it's tap into the collective unconscious or just some some sight that most people don't have. I think there are people who have those capabilities. Like I'm, I'm a believer in that. I think a lot of people who claim to have it are really just grifting people for money. I think that's super common. Yeah, I think I there think, are a lot of like. I think psychics. that's extremely common. Yeah, yeah, there are a ton of psychic scams, but I think I do believe that some people have that those capabilities. Yeah, I think I I think I definitely agree. Um you know, obviously to an extent. Like you know, I think yeah. I think that it's definitely possible, especially for someone to possess like an ability to kinda not necessarily see into the future or anything like that, but have that intuition, have that like you know, almost like mind it, it almost like a mindset. To where you know they can kind of feel like specific things, right? Um, but yeah, like they're I said, open as far to as... all, they're open to all the signs of what's right, coming, exactly. And yeah. you know, maybe maybe make a very strong call that you know you know predict something that does end up happening because yeah. of how many like signs are there or how much they're able to put together, like how intuitive they are, like you know every everything else. Like I think there's a lot of factors that come into play. But yeah. at the same time, like when it comes to dreaming, I think is a is a different, almost like a different uh, situation. 
you know because yeah. i think like you know obviously we we dream about things that you know we're like th- that we think about or like subconsciously think about or whatever else or desires or fears and things like that but i think like you know just as we've kind of talked about like you know when it comes to like psychics or you know like anyone that's more sensitive in that like being able to like you know into intuitive and all that stuff um i think like you know i honestly i think at some point there comes a time that even when dreaming like you know there there is there are times where you know we get to lift that veil temporarily and whether or not like we agree or buy into it or believe you know what we're actually being you know shown or witnessing whatever else um you know i think that's different with every person yeah i yeah i would agree with that i think i mean there's a huge conversation to be had about what dreams even are right like that's that's a huge because no one actually no one really knows right yeah for sure um you know and if you're someone who believes in a collective unconscious then you could say that dreaming is you know when we get to sort of dip into that collective unconscious and because like you said we people do often dream of things they're thinking about things they're worried about things they're excited for but there is also some off the wall shit that people dream about that just seems to come out of nowhere that makes no sense to them that makes no sense to anyone right exactly and and there are a lot of recurring motifs in in dreams like dreaming of snakes dreaming of spiders there there's all this like this iconic imagery that happens in dreams mm-hmm. as well and which you know screams collective unconscious to me if you're a person who leans more toward like metaphysical stuff, like the idea of, you know, the multiverse, right? Where like, then you might consider dreams, or maybe a point where you access a, a plane where all those eventualities, all those different universes, are accessible, right? Same with like uh, with psychedelic drug trips, right? Like it it puts your mind on a plane where you can access other realities, basically Mm -hmm. other planes. Um, so it really depends on what dreams are. I mean, if you have, maybe that's like for a few hours a night, we all get to be a little bit psychic, you know? Yeah. We all get to like, and whether, whether what we're seeing is some, you know, dimension that we'll never interact with in our way in the waking world, or maybe every once in a while we get a taste of, you know, what's to come in our dimension. Okay. That's fair. Um, and I know, you know, piggybacking off of that, like, is I, I've had a lot of dreams, especially about like, uh, deceased, like family members and friends and, you know, things like that, right. where you get to, almost experience you know getting to see them or uh sharing like moments and things like that which i i I honestly think that that that's also you know almost like a peek into like a lifted veil as well 
Yeah. Um, you know, because like I- I've had some strange ones that like, you know, even they'll acknowledge like, yeah, I'm, you know, like that they've died and all this other stuff. And it's like after the fact, like asking me how my life is, like how, you know, how I'm doing, like trying to almost guide me in a, you know, a direction or something yeah. like that, which I think, it, you know, it is also important to, to recognize as well. And I think that that's really awesome comes along with that same, you know, that same almost like idea of like premonitions throughout, you know, dreams yeah. or whatever. Right. I've never had an experience like that. You're super lucky for that. I've, I've like, had quite a few of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, I mean, to me, that's just like getting bonus time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you get to spend extra time with a lost loved one. That's incredibly valuable. Yeah, it can it can be really really strange though, especially like because yeah. when you know like you have that thought like hey you know like how am I seeing you or how am I like you know how how are we here sort of thing um, yeah you know because I mean especially being being able to recognize that as, as you're dreaming is also important. It's not just like you're you know dreaming like a past memory or something like that, right? You're, yeah, you're fully in the present and both acknowledging what's happened. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I've had that a lot, especially with grandparents. Yeah. That's probably been my most frequent, for sure. Wow. See, that's... Yeah, I mean, that's right up there with having, like, a premonition in a dream, right? That's, that's like, some otherworldly shit. Right. I mean, it it definitely can be. I think so. Yeah. I mean, do you consider those um do you consider those experiences like paranormal experiences? Do you feel like that's like le- that you made like legitimate contact some of those times? I personally I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've also had dreams where I've I like I feel like I've astral projected. Yeah. Uh, and those are even crazier. Um, that's awesome. Where I've actually literally like saw my body laying there, and you know, so I mean, dreams are weird, man. Like just the little things that we can experience that I don't personally, I don't think are just in our heads. I don't think it's just that, like that, you know, like unconscious or subconscious thought or whatever else. I think, like, I think there's a lot more to it. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm so jealous. I've I've literally like read books on how to astral project and I've tried so many times oh, yeah. and I've I've never even gotten close. I used to a lot when I was younger just by yeah. literally laying, you know, laying in bed or on the floor or you know like wherever I'm, you know, whatever you're most comfortable like setting yourself up for that. And yeah, like I I've tried for hours, but the only time like I feel like I've ever actually been able to do it has been when I've been dreaming. Gotcha. But that's happened numerous times. So I don't know. I might, it might just be one of those like just strange, weird dreams. Sure. But sure. could be. Who knows? Yeah. All right. So let's get into. I have a few notable historic sort of premonitions. Okay. All right. So I'd like to start with. Morgan Robertson's book that predicted the sinking of the Titanic. Okay. Okay. So, I'll just read you a little bit about it. 
cool? Yeah. All right. So, the sinking of the Titanic on April 14th, 1912 is one of the most written about disasters in human history. It's an especially tra- it, it was especially tragic because the catastrophe could have been avoided. In his novella, Futility, Morgan Robertson seemingly wrote about the sinking of the giant passenger liner because of the remarkable number of similarities between the Titanic and the doomed ship in his story called the Titan. The thing is, Robertson wrote Futility 14 years before the tragedy, in 1898. So, there are, like, tons of... If you actually look at the text, like, there are tons of comparisons, like, the size of the boat, like, he goes into, like, measurements and shit Mm. of the boat, and, like, he basically was describing the Titanic before it was even built. That's crazy. And yeah, and it goes down, it hits an iceberg and sinks and like it's note for note the Titanic. It's it's crazy. I mean, um, you know, back then it probably would have been I mean, obviously this is being 14 years earlier, like that's pretty significant. I was going to say, you know, at that point in time this being like one of the largest um, you know, ships that that had ever sailed like whatever else. I mean, you know, I'm sure a lot of people had a pretty good idea, like, this might not make it. You know, this is more I don't know, man. They they build it as being unsinkable. Right, of course. Of course they did. Yeah. You can build anything as being unsinkable, but it can still sink. You know, or... Yeah. Like, (laughs) it's just, you know... So, I mean, that that can go with everything, right? Nothing sinks until it sinks, right? Exactly. Nothing crashes till it crashes. Yeah. For sure. Okay, so another one. There's this fellow named Barrett Naylor. Okay. He's a a Wall Street guy. All right. And he avoided both terrorist strikes on the World Trade Center because of. Okay, I'm just going to. I'm going to read you about it. It's it's not long, but I'm going to read this. It's wild. Okay. It's pretty spooky when a premonition comes true. When it happens twice in the same place eight years apart, it's almost terrifying. But this is what apparently happened to Barrett Naylor in 1993 and again in 2001. On the morning of February 26, 1993, Naylor, a Wall Street executive, was on his way to work at the World Trade Center. It was a regular morning, but when he reached Grand Central Station, he had a sudden and unmistakable feeling of foreboding that he couldn't describe. Mm. Something he couldn't explain told him to turn around and go home. Naylor did just that, and his U-turn probably saved his life because at 12.17pm that day, a bomb exploded in the center, killing six people and injuring over a thousand. The terrorists had intended to bring down Tower 1 and force it to crash into Tower 2. Had they succeeded, the death toll would have been in the thousands. Four men were convicted of the bombing in 94, while two more were convicted in 97. It was a dark day in the uh, for the United States, but just over eight and a half years later, the nation experienced its worst ever terrorist attack. September 11th, 2001, now known simply as 9-11, was a day like no other. Naylor was once again getting ready for work in the World Trade Center when he got the same feeling as he did in 1993. Naylor went home, just like he did once before, 
and he was stunned to discover what happened next. To this day, he is grateful that he received the premonitions, but also feels guilty that he was unable to help others. But, to be fair, I think that if he'd told people, they, I mean, would they have believed him right. anyway? Yeah, I mean, right? if you try to like say, oh yeah, this is, you know, something's going to happen, or this is going to go down, or whatever else. Yeah. I mean, the chances of people actually taking your story for what it is, and you know, what, yeah, yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna be very, uh, very few and far between. But like the way he describes it is, the first time he was just like, I don't feel good about this. I'm just, I'm gonna go home. Right, right. And then it ended up a terrorist attack. So when he got that exact same feeling, he said he had never felt that feeling since until that morning. He was already at work. He was already in the World Trade Center when yeah. he got the feeling. And he went home. Yeah. That, I he mean, was like, I'm, I'm out of here. That guy, that guy's lucky. You know, to, yeah. to put it lightly. Like, just to even have that thought and be able to recognize it and then also not have it since, you know, that original one. I'm sure, like, yeah. he was probably like, okay, yeah, I, I need to leave. Like, yeah, the last time I felt this, right, exactly. I could have died. Yeah. That's crazy. Isn't it? It's just, I mean, it's it, like, again, we can call it intuition. We can, you know, we can chalk it up to whatever else, but like, that feels like a bit more than, more than that to me, you know? Yeah. That feels like the universe sticking its fucking finger on your head, going like, hey, pay attention. Right. Like, that seems like so much more than intuition to me. And maybe, you know, he had that and was supposed to warn people. Maybe. But, you know, again, yeah. what good would it have done? And would he have gotten out of there on time as well? You know, yeah. to be able to, to make it home or whatever else, right? Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of, like, a lot of things that could have happened. I and feel so. like he's... He was not only lucky to get the feeling and to recognize it, but he was lucky to not have the self-doubt that would make most people go like, no, I'm just being weird. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he trusted his feeling and was like, I'm getting out of here. Yeah, it's it's just crazy. I mean, it's just, it is crazy to think about. And I think, like, the next time I ever have like a weird feeling, I just need to trust my gut. Yeah. Like that's what these stories tell me. (laughs) Right. That's what I'm saying. Maybe I'm not just paranoid or, you know, like whatever else, like maybe something else is actually at play. Yeah. Next time you're like standing in line somewhere in a sketchy place and you feel like I'm not safe here. Mm -hmm. Like just go home, just leave, get out of there. Wow. Yeah. I just I mean, with that being such a such a major like event in in history and in, in our history, like, you know, in our our time here, yeah. like that is such a big thing to avoid, especially the fact yeah. that you know him being there already and choosing to leave like Yeah. Yeah, I can't get over it. Like I just, yeah, it's crazy. I, I couldn't imagine like that feeling afterward. Yeah. Because, I mean, you realize I could have been there. Like, that literally could have been me. Yeah, like I was just there an hour ago. Right. 
Yeah. Wow. That's that's super crazy. Super crazy, man. Yeah. Super crazy. It really okay. is. I have one more. I have one more for you. All right. So, a lot of people believe that, and you know, independent trigger warning here because this one gets a little a little dark. Okay. Um, and a little violent. So. There's a a theory among Sharon Tate's friends that she predicted her own murder. Okay. So, I'm going to read you. Yeah. Read you a piece. So, back in 1967, a full two years before the murder of Sharon Tate, she was in a bedroom at her boyfriend's house and had a terrible feeling of foreboding she found impossible to shake off. She was attempting to get to sleep when suddenly a man entered the room. It was the house's former owner, Paul Byrne, a man who had committed suicide several years previously. Tate was terrified and ran out of the room and down the stairs. However, she was greeted with the hideous sight of a figure with its throat slashed. After taking a minute to compose herself, Tate had a drink, but the apparitions of Byrne and the ghostly victim remained. Over the next few years, Tate became convinced that she was the victim on the stairs. While she told many people about the events of the evening, there was nothing anyone could do to save her. As intriguing as the story is, you can explain the first part. Tate would have known all about the story of Byrne who killed himself in 1932 after the actress Jean Harlow left him. Tate was alone in the house, and when she saw someone come into the bedroom, she describes him as looking like every description she had heard of about Byrne. The terrified Tate ran out of the room and met the gruesome apparition at the bottom of the stairs, an incident that is harder to explain, but perhaps she was hallucinating. It was the 1960s, so there's every chance that Tate had consumed narcotics that could have altered her mental state. In 1969, she was stabbed to death by several Manson family members and it's probable that she was hanged from a rafter in the living room. Her place of death was just one mile away from where she had seen the apparition in 1967. Yeah, I I remember this story, uh, because this is a pretty notoriously well-known haunted house. Yeah. Um, There's been a lot of stuff, and I think, like, what was it, her ex-boyfriend was the one that that lived there or something like that? Yeah. Right, yeah, he was, like, the hairdresser or something, I believe. Yes. Um, And he was one of the guys that ended up getting killed as well. Yeah. So. There's, yeah. There's a ton of stuff from like 60s and 70s era Hollywood. Right. Oh, yeah. There's a bunch. Tons of legends. A lot of of really, really cool stuff. That was actually one I, I looked at. I looked into at one point about trying to maybe do a story on our cover a little bit. But, I mean... There wasn't to me. There just wasn't enough there to kind of like do a, like a full episode on. But yeah, I mean that's I mean that's that's what a lot of people think as well is that you know she saw these things and it was basically her like seeing her future. You know, as yeah. as what it ended up happening that night. Yeah, which is you know I think a lot of a lot of not just like premonitions and stuff like that, but a lot of anomalous experiences from the 60s and 70s get written off because of drugs i mean yeah because like the hippie culture was so prevalent the acid the mushrooms the Mm -hmm. weed all that stuff but i mean that i don't know it feels valid to me 
I agree. I, I think it, I think it's just more of like a cop out just to try and chalk it up to all that and just say Agreed. there's your excuse. Yeah. You know, without like fully, you know, fully like considering it or looking more into the facts or, you know, like events of yeah. what happened. And I'm a person who believes that if you have to eat some mushrooms to peek through the veil, I don't think that makes it any less valid than if you're a person who is naturally intuitive enough yeah. to have those experiences. So, you know? I mean, you know, it's it's also said that especially like things like mushrooms and stuff like that allow you to tap into you know, different parts of your brain that we normally don't have access to as well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, like how however you can tap into that like great because i mean is we only use such a small percentage of what we have available right sure i think there are definitely like i mean it's altered perceptions right it literally changes the way you see the world of course so i'm i think there are probably layers to reality that you don't have access to all the time and you know, things like mushrooms and LSD and other hallucinogens, I think, might sort of, like, drop that filter over your mm-hmm. perception and let you let you see some layers that you don't normally have access to. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Imagine, though, yeah. being able to have that ability, though, all the time. Right. I mean, there are people who claim it, you know? I, I suppose that's true as well, you know, but, you know, how much truth there is, is there to that? But again, right. we can't just dismiss it because that's what we're kind of discussing here, you know, yeah. like unless unless you can really be able to tell like yes and no or, you know, like be able to determine 100 percent. Yeah, no, I was having I was having this conversation with um, Jeremy from Beliefful earlier today. Like, do you find it? Do you find a witness more or more credible or less credible when they've had like a wide range of experiences, you know, like, cause I always lean towards skepticism when I hear someone say like, but this experience wasn't anything like when I saw Bigfoot or when I was abducted or like the yeah. shadow people I've seen all my life. Being able to you have I mean? so many unique experiences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It almost makes the next one less credible. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like some people, it has to, there has to be a spectrum of sensitivity to this phenomenon, right? So, I would think so. Someone, someone has to be way at the end of the spectrum. Like, just seeing shit all the time. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, you do have the people that, you know, claim to talk and, and work with, like, different alien races and you know things like that like i mean yeah there's there's a lot of different things like that that i if we're if we're looking at like a spectrum and then we're placing people on them i think they'd be at the the highest end of it yeah you know if i feel like if, if you're it's a legitimate. nuts and bolts alien <laughs> yeah i feel like if you're a nuts and bolts alien person like does that even fit into the idea of being like more or less sensitive to the phenomenon you know like isn't that like running into Jerry at the grocery store? Right. Is I mean, that's more people. so like you're chosen. So yeah, you're going to continue to have this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, I honestly, I don't know. Yeah. 
I'm so not that guy. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm, I'm so not like, I don't know. I don't think about any of this like that. Like, just, I don't think about alien encounters like, I have, I have trouble wrapping my head around them being that plain. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I have to put them, I have to set them in this like mind altering state. You know, like, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Like, you would think they'd be a lot more significant than just as a, oh, well, you know, Harry, Harry and, you know, who's her face came and we talked and they said, oh yeah, we're we're thinking about doing this. And then they left. Like, yeah. Like these people are just having business meetings. (laughs) It's like, you know, just having lunch with your neighbor. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I, right. That's a whole that's a whole other conversation, but like I agree. I agree for sure. Yeah. So let's let's pull a final ruling here. What do you think? What do Honestly, you think about I I I do buy it. Um, you know, again, just just like we talked about before. I think that there's there's definitely a certain level of intuition or even a higher state of that where like i said you're able to especially within dreaming you know due to this story um i think there is you know there are opportune times or opportunities for us to be able to see beyond that veil like you know to peek into something that we wouldn't normally have access to yeah i don't think it's i don't think it happens a lot you know but i think it does does definitely happen yeah, I agree. I'm right. I'm right there with you. I think this fellow, David Booth, I think he accidentally just like dipped his mind ladle into the collective unconscious and pulled out like a you know a nice steaming bowl of future <laughs> and traumatizing plane crash. Yes, yeah, not the flavor I would recommend. No, but I would. I would. Pref- I would. I think I'd spit that back out and go for something else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's what what happens in these cases. I think you know, you're it's like dreaming plus. Yeah. Where you get like access to this collective unconscious, this shared knowledge between all humans. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And it's super I mean, it's super cool and very neat nonetheless despite like, you know, the and also scary devastating situation that this was but yeah, yeah definitely scary for sure and i think it's something like if someone gets to experience and things like that don't immediately dismiss it you know maybe maybe consider it consider that you know you're not just dreaming about something crazy yeah yeah and feel you know at least a little bit honored that like you're able to have that experience at all because some of us lay in bed begging for it (laughs) begging the universe for access right yeah just never gonna get it not me i don't do that but some people do right right yeah 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 anyway i think that concludes episode 47 david booth and Flight 191. 
thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. And if you want more, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling. It's there you will find bonus content behind the scenes. We're just keeping up on our day to day and maybe some swag along the way. It is our way to show thanks for your support and do everything we can to provide you with as much content as possible. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling. With that said, we want to get to know each and every one of you. So please come and check us out on all the socials at campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook at campfire T-O-T-S-A-U on Twitter. And you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And lastly, we do have our merch store. You can find the link available on all of our social media or via our link tree. Show your support. Buy a shirt. Buy a sticker. Buy a blanket. Buy a pillow. Anything that you want to rep Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram. The brilliant mind behind the gorgeous music that you hear each week behind the debrief. So go find him at reverentmusic.bandcamp.com or you can visit his Spotify page by searching Reverent, R-E-V-E-R-E-N-T. All of these links can be found in the episode description. Go and support him. You both deserve it. And that's it. Until next time, I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and and trust trust in the unknown. unknown.